All right, Fight Fans, we are back. Episode number 124 of The Neutral Corner. You guys had over an hour of news and notes in the first part. Now here in the second part, we're going to review the last two weeks of fights and then preview what's coming up this week. So let's get right into it, the review of the last two weeks. Saturday, May 19th, Elland Road Football Ground in Leeds, Yorkshire, UK. That's Josh Warrington's hometown. And the hometown boy scores a split decision win over Lee Selby, takes his IBF featherweight title. Selby was cut above the left eye in the second round and the right eye in the sixth round, both, I think, from headbutts. He, he fought well through those cuts, but they clearly affected him. Warrington is now 27-0 with six knockouts. No power at all, but he has a really, really tough style. Comes forward, uh, uses the head a lot, a lot of headbutts. He's cut four or five of his opponents now. So uh, if you're going up against this guy, that's something you just have to game plan for. It's part of his style. Uh, I don't think he's ever lost a point or anything like that for an intentional foul, an intentional headbutt. I didn't see anything that looked egregious or dirty or anything like that. It's just the guy's style. Selby uh, claimed that he had trouble making weight. He looked a little sap in this fight, a little sap. He said he's going to move up to 130 pounds now. And for Warrington, he's got a title at featherweight. That is a loaded division with a lot of possibilities. Also on the 19th at the MGM National Harbor in Oxon Hill, Maryland. Talking about featherweights. Showtime opener, Gary Russell Jr. defends his WBC featherweight title against Joseph Diaz Jr. in a pretty good fight. This is a pretty good fight. Diaz had moments early on, and really th throughout the fight, but... I felt halfway through that this fight was even. In the end, I scored at 116-112 for Russell. In the second half of the fight, Russell showed his class. He made adjustments. He won the second half of the fight. Again, Diaz had some moments down the stretch, but not like in the first half. And really what this came down to, man, Russell and his corner were able to make adjustments. And Diaz and his corner... We're not able to make adjustments. Now, down the stretch, there were little pieces of rounds where Diaz didn't do a lot of work. He didn't punch a lot. And a lot of people think that's just because um, he, he just didn't, it was, wasn't part of his game plan or he, uh, he didn't, couldn't get punches off, whatever. It's because he was confused. It's because he was being outboxed. It's because he had a guy in there who had a little more craft, a lot more athleticism and speed and Diaz just wasn't given the instructions he needed. He just needed to stay busy. I don't think that Russell could really hurt him. There wasn't enough power there. Diaz showed a pretty good chin. He showed a good chin so far in his career. He's pretty defensively responsible. I don't think he was used to getting hit as easily as Russell hit him with at times. But Russell would land a lot of pity pat, a lot of shoe shine. The thing Russell does, and look, Russell... Boxing is the Russell family business. There's a bunch of them. They all box, right? Gary has been boxing since he was in diapers. And he knows that even if you're shoe shining a guy, that last punch at the end of that combination has to have a little steam on it, a little mustard on it to get your opponent's respect. And that last shoe shine, or I'm sorry, the last punch of that combination, when it has pop, that is what makes a fighter freeze up because what happens is if you're the opponent, you see the shoe shine combination coming at you, you cover up. 
And it's not because you fear the shoe shine, it's because you fear that last shot. I shouldn't say fear, but you respect it. So you see the shoe shine coming, and instead of reacting, instead of uh, trying to counter, you know that last shot's coming that has a little pop on it, and you don't like it. So you cover up, you clam up, you don't respond, you don't punch back, you don't counter as much. And that's what we saw from Diaz down the stretch. And his father, who runs his corner, who's done a fine job in his career up to this point, simply did not know how to make the adjustments. Diaz and his dad are wonderful, wonderful people. Tiffany and I you know, met them, saw them work out at the gym before. We did a, a piece in boxing monthly. You guys who follow me, you know that. You've seen the video interview that was part of that overall piece, that overall package, that story we did on him on my channel. You can go find it. Wonderful people. His dad's done an awesome job, especially for a guy that really didn't have any boxing background before his son got involved. They've done great. But that elite level, that next level to get it done against guys like Russell, they're going to need to, I'm not going to say make a complete change. I don't see Diaz doing that. I can't see Joseph Diaz kicking his dad to the curb. He's not built that way. Very close family. Crazy close family. But they could bring in a more experienced, true boxing guy as the head trainer, as a consultant, something. Bring in somebody. Imagine if Joseph Diaz started working with, let's say, a Robert Garcia or somebody like that with his father still in the corner, but maybe as the assistant trainer, something like that. I really, really think that could help Diaz make adjustments because he just... They looked out of their element. And it wasn't really a difference in class, so to speak. Although you know, Russell is clearly a step ahead of Diaz right now. He is an elite featherweight. He's one of the more elite level fighters in the sport, Gary Russell is. Diaz could hang with him in terms of... Diaz is world class. I thought he, should, he proved that in this fight. But he couldn't make the adjustments. He didn't know what to do in there. And there were moments where he just kind of froze... Didn't throw punches because, again, he respected those combinations coming back from Russell. He didn't know when they were coming, but he knew when they were coming, they'd be a problem. And, um, look, Russell will be, or I'm sorry, Diaz will be back. He's got to make some changes on his team, though. Has to do it. If he doesn't do it, he's not going to be back. At least not at the elite level. Ain't going to happen. For Russell, this was his best win. As I said, Diaz is legit. Former Olympian, just like Russell, great amateur career, has had a very good, solid career so far as a pro, earned this title shot, legitimately earned this title shot. He was ready, as ready as he was ever going to be with his father for this title shot. Legit. And Russell clearly won this fight. I thought he clearly won eight rounds. Some people had this fight wider than that. I, yeah, I, I don't know if... You could give more than eight or nine rounds to Russell. On the other side, I don't know if you could give Diaz any more than four or five rounds. It was a clear win for Russell. The question is, when is this guy going to be back? He's clearly an elite-level talent. He's one of the best little guys in the business. He's probably the best featherweight in the world right now. Think about it. If he fought, if he fought let's see, um, Frampton. If you fought Santa Cruz, maybe some of you guys would favor those fighters over Russell, but admit, it'd almost be 50-50.
Me, I'd probably favor Russell to beat those guys right now. I think he's the best featherweight probably in the world. Lomachenko could make featherweight right now if he really wanted to. So if they, you know, if Lomachenko moved back down to 126 right now for some reason, he's the best featherweight in the world. But since Lomachenko left and he's already given up his 130-pound title, he's going to defend his, he's staying at lightweight, he wants to defend that title. Gary Russell's probably the best featherweight in the world right now, man. Is he going to fight again this year? He fought once in 15, once in 16, once in 17. Is he going to do the same damn thing this year? I really hope not. Why kill his momentum, man? Best one of your career. Get your ass back in the ring before the end of the summer. I'm talking somewhere in August. And then come back again November, December. Fight three times this year. Get active. Make some damn money. He made money in this fight. He made over a million dollars. But he could work his way into some bigger fights, especially if you're willing to stamp his passport and go over to the UK. Josh Warrington, hello. Does anyone think Warrington would at all be that competitive with Russell? More competitive than Diaz? I don't think so. I think Russell could go over there, unify titles, make some easy money. But he's got to get busy. This was the opener of a Showtime card, as I said. In the main event, it flipped over to the Air Canada Centre in Toronto, Ontario. Adonis Stevenson and Badu Jack fight to a majority draw. Now... This fight started out as absolute shit. For the first six rounds, what I saw was a guy in Adonis Stevenson that was cocking his left hand, looking for one punch, but his feet moving through mud. He looked really, really slow on his feet. Did not look that explosive in general. And I thought he was telegraphing the left hand all day in any defensively responsible, uh, tactical type fighter, which Jack is could see those left hands coming. And all Jack did for the first six rounds was avoid the straight left hand from Adonis Stevenson. Neither, neither man did a whole lot, but Adonis did just a little more because he was the one actually throwing punches. They were all blocked or he missed, but at least he was throwing punches. So basically, the first six rounds of this fight was a sparring session where one guy was just giving the other guy work. It almost looked like an offensive drill. So sometimes... In sparring, you might have one guy playing offense, one guy playing defense. And you tell fighter A, look, I want you to get some shots off. Fighter B, I want you to shell up and try to move and roll with these shots. If you punch back, just move your guy. Punch him to the, or jab him to the chest or hit him to the shoulders and spin off. Move him to get some distance. But I don't want you shooting upstairs. Work the body and work the chest. But I want you just to work on defense. That almost looked like what this was. The first six rounds. Those, those are drills you do with kids in the gym. That's what I saw. But sixth, seventh round, Jack started to really, really find his range and find his rhythm. And I don't know if it's that this was part of his plan or, or what. I get it that Stevenson had, had had such a layoff, had only fought like a round or two in the last two years. I, I understand taking him to the deep waters, but you're in this guy's hometown you got to start sooner. You got to do something starting in the third or fourth round. You can't give a dude five, maybe six of the first six rounds. Anyway, Jack gets it going in the second half of the fight. Had Stevenson buzzed and it almost looked like he was exhausted at different times. The problem is a lot of it from Jack was one punch at a time. He'd have little moments, but he would never follow up on them. He'd have a little moment... You'd see, uh, you'd see Stevenson visibly. You could see that he was bothered. 
Maybe he was a little buzzed. His legs were a little shaky. He looked tired. His mouth was open. He was huffing and puffing. Jack was doing good work, but he wasn't doing it consistently enough. You got a guy hurt. You're in his hometown. Put a stamp on it, man. Badly hurt the dude. Make it look like a 10-8 round. If you can't drop the guy because he's got a good chin, and Stevenson showed a pretty good chin in this fight, although Badu Jack has never been a very, very big puncher. But when if you're Donna Stevenson and you're trying to reserve your, your gas tank for the final rounds, and that's what I saw Stevenson doing really through rounds 7 through 10, to me, he just took his foot off the gas pedal because he didn't feel like he had the the energy to fight hard all 12 rounds. He knew he had built such a lead. I think he let off the gas pedal and let Jack do some work. Jack did do some good work, but he just wasn't being, he wasn't following up. He wasn't being a killer in there. He wasn't trying to be the boss in there. And as a result, he pretty much gave this, this fight away, man. Stevenson came back. I don't know if it was the 10th or the 11th round. I can't remember. It's been a couple weeks, but, um, he landed a very good counter punch to the body. I think it was a straight left hand right to the solar plex that visibly hurt Jack. I mean, he almost went down. His knees kind of almost buckled. He definitely had a visible reaction to it. And because of that, I believe it was the 11th round, uh, Stevenson got that round. It was enough to get that round. And that's what got him to draw in this fight. If he doesn't land that punch, Jack probably wins this fight by a point on two of the cards and by two points on one of the cards and he wins a unanimous decision and he walks away with the WBC light heavyweight championship but Stevenson landed that one shot he realized he wasn't getting it done upstairs he went to the body it was a smart tactic by him and it saved his title for him for another night so in this fight honestly one man looked old and ready to go the other guy looked either unwilling or unable to fully take advantage of that. I can't tell which one. I think he was willing. I think he was simply unable to. Now, some members of the media, and look, the second half of the fight had some action. It did, and it was it was entertaining down the stretch. It, it was. It, this fight started as shit, but it ended up being a good, the last six rounds of this fight were good, entertaining stuff. And it was mostly because Jack was making the fight competitive and actually landing punches on Stevenson and Stevenson was being forced to survive and fight back and it made it fun It was also because we had just seen six rounds of pure shit So anything was better than that So I think some people graded this fight on a curve and there were members of the media And I'm not just talking about like wannabe media or amateur media part-time media, whatever I'm talking about full-time paid media that works full-time for certain uh, outlets that you guys know and love and respect. We're calling this a great fight. A fight of the year candidate. One of the best fights they've ever seen live. That is absolutely ridiculous. This wasn't in the top five of best fights we've seen so far this year. Valdez Quig, Wilder Ortiz... Rungvisai Estrada. Those are three off the top of my head. Lomachenko Linares. There's four. We have seen at least, I know there's a couple more I'm forgetting right now off the top of my head, that were light years better than this. Okay? And yes, I'm not a big fan of Adana Stevenson, although I do like Badu Jack. And it's not that I dislike Stevenson as a fighter. I dislike him as a human being. I think he's a vile piece of shit. But he can be entertaining as a fighter. When he fights, I watch. It's just this fight wasn't that damn good. 
Some of you guys were talking about this being the fight of the year. I don't know. You're getting a little too ahead of yourselves. This fight was a pay-per-view in Canada, which I'm sorry, Canadians. I, you know, that, that's just terrible. I don't know what to say about that. It peaked at around 600,000 viewers on Showtime in the United States. I, all things considered, this is a light heavyweight championship fight. A former fighter of the year five years ago, Stevenson was the Ring Magazine Fighter of the Year and won the, at that time, lineal light heavyweight championship. Although, in my opinion, it was badly perverted. Um, Chad Dawson had moved down in weight and got beaten up by Andre Ward, who doesn't beat people up and you know lost that fight was knocked out in sparring for that fight knocked out by ward comes back up in weight gets knocked out by stevenson perfect timing for stevenson took advantage you know i i totally get that more power to him but was he the real light heavyweight championship no sergey kovalev became the legitimate light heavyweight champion and then andre ward did in their rematch Love it or, you know, love it or hate it the way he won it. He, he won that second fight and he became the light heavyweight champion. Adonis Stevenson, he's had a title, but he's held that title hostage. And it's crazy to think a guy who was the fighter of the year in 2013 with so much potential, five years later is defending his title, I think for the ninth time. And it does a 600,000 rating on Showtime. Adrian Broner recently had a fight. Adrian Broner's a has-been, Right. Almost a never was, but uh, has been faded. Nowhere near what he once was at his best. And he did a much better rating than that in a fight that was not nearly as important as this fight was. So how the mighty, the once mighty, the briefly mighty have fallen. Badu Jack bitched about the draw. I believe this was his fourth draw. He said it was because the judges don't like Floyd Mayweather who promotes him. That is one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. Badu Jack has nobody to blame but himself. He never empties the gas tank. He does just enough to make fights close and competitive, which is good. But he doesn't do enough to win it. And he thinks that, look, Floyd Mayweather won fights that way. The difference is Floyd would put his stamp on the round when he had to. What Floyd would do in a lot of fights, he might give away the first round or two. But he got going in that third, fourth round. And some of the fights where he was actually fighting someone with a pulse, he had them, you know, it took them a little, he took them a little longer to figure them out. Maybe it took until the sixth, seventh, or it was competitive down the stretch. But Floyd, he'd give away the first couple rounds to see what you were working with, and then he'd start kicking into gear. And there were times where Floyd would win round by round. He would do just enough to win a round, but he'd clearly win it. He'd land a big, big shot. Kind of the way Stevenson won that 11th round with that power punch, right? That, that body shot that bothered Jack. That was a close round that could have went either way up until that point. In fact, Jack might have been winning it at that point. I think he was. But not crazy. He wasn't winning it so dominantly that one big punch from Stevenson couldn't steal it. Floyd would win rounds like that in some fights. But that was Floyd Mayweather. Badu Jack ain't Floyd Mayweather. He's promoted by him, but he ain't going to win fights the way Floyd did. He ain't the same type of fighter. So I, I just, you know, for Badu Jack, bitch and moan and make excuses. But dude, this is 100% on you. You gave the damn fight away. It was there to be had. Any of the top five light heavyweights in the world would have clearly 
defeated these two fighters on that night. Period. Speaking of top five light heavyweights, Alexander Gabajdik is supposed to be next. He's in line for the WBC shot against Adonis Stevenson. Now, Gabajdik has been dropped before, right? He's been, he's been buzzed. He can be hit. He's not impossible to hit, especially a southpaw throwing bombs with the left hand. So it'd be interesting. But in terms of craft, in terms of footwork, in terms of athleticism, I think Gavajdik is the right guy. Is he the best light heavyweight in the world? No. It, look, Dmitry Bivol, Sergey Kovalev, and probably even Artur Beterbiev, but I'm going to leave him out of that conversation. Bivol and Kovalev brutally knock out Adonis Stevenson within four or five rounds. Brutally. Kovalev might decide to just punish him for nine or ten rounds before finally getting rid of him. But that fight's not, those fights aren't even competitive at this point. Baturbiev, I think, I'd favor to beat Stevenson. I'd favor Gavajdik to beat him. But it's going to be interesting, and, and Stevenson has a legitimate shot, especially if he stays more active and is in better shape next time. However, this guy has had mandatories before. Edladir Alvarez, who's about to fight Kovalev, the man El, uh, Stevenson shamelessly ducked. Alvarez was mandatory for years, and Stevenson didn't fight him. Well, I think the WBC is sick of the criticism, and also they've got a different animal here in Gavajdik. He is managed by Igis Klimas, and Klimas has said straight up, we will not accept, accept step-aside money. We want the fight with Stevenson next. Period. End of story. Now, some people have said that this fight between Stevenson and Jack was so good, and the Showtime crew was talking about, we need a rematch. I, I don't think anybody outside of Adana Stevenson and Badu Jack fans, all 600,000 of them who tuned in for this fight around the world, want to see it. I think people would be much more interested in seeing Jack fight somebody in the lower top 10, because that's probably around where he is. He's on the bubble of the lower top 10 of this division, and people would rather see Stevenson fight Gavajdik. And I favor Gavajdik to win that fight, and then the WBC title will move over to ESPN. The boys at Showtime don't want that shit, and that's why they're calling for a rematch between Stevenson and Jack. I don't blame them, but guys, nobody wants to see that shit again. Good quality fun fight, don't need to see it again. Let's have both guys move on. Look, if Stevenson beats Gavajdik, knocks him out, if Jack gets back in the ring and wins and beats somebody, then let's see a rematch. Until then, I don't need to see it. Let's move on. Speaking of moving on, let's move on to the following day, Sunday, May 20th, at the Ota City General Gymnasium in Tokyo. Heki Budler from South Africa wins a unanimous decision over Ryuichi Taguchi, takes his IBF and WBA Junior flyweight titles. He wins by the scores of 114-113 three times. And I think Butler was dropped in the 12th round. So really all three judges had this seven rounds to five for him. Butler started well, won the first half of the fight, but Taguchi came back in the second half, as I mentioned, dropped Butler in the 12th. Uh, but Butler clearly did more. He won this fight in a, in a, in a minor upset. Actually, this might have been a more than minor upset. I favored Taguchi in this fight. A couple of you guys on, on YouTube commented on that last episode of TNC and said that Butler was no joke. 
And you were right. You guys called it, man. Um, you know, look, coming in, here's why I thought this would be a clear win for Taguchi. I didn't think it was going to be a complete whitewash, but I, I, I favored him to win. And I've, I favored him to win clearly. Uh, Taguchi hadn't lost since going the distance with Naoya Inouye back in 2013. And we all saw what Inoue just did recently, right? I'll talk about that in a second. But this dude went the distance with Inoue in 2013. So he had shown a good, good set of whiskers and he could go rounds against elite level opposition. Now, Inoue five years ago wasn't quite developed as the fighter he is now, but the dude still hit like a truck for that weight. Talking 108 pounds, right? Butler from South Africa, as I mentioned before, was coming into this fight off a loss. It was a close loss, but he was dropped in that fight. He went to the Philippines in September, dropped in that fight, and he had lost two of his last four coming in. He was also the shorter guy. He's listed as five foot three. Taguchi's listed five foot six. I don't know if it was quite a complete three inch height difference. It looked more like an inch or two, but still, the, definitely the smaller guy punching up. So. I, yes, I favor Taguchi, and this is absolutely an upset. Good for Butler, man. He, he's not just a titleist. He's got two titles now in that division, and he's he's set up for major, major business. He has earned the right to go back to South Africa, defend those titles there. Look, his last two fights have been in the Philippines and Japan. He stamped his passport. He went out there and did the hard work, and now go home, defend those titles there. I don't know how well-received He's going to be in South Africa with all the issues they have going on there right now. There's some crazy shit going over there right now. The media in the United States, for some reason, isn't talking about it. But I would have to think that him being from that country and being a champion, you know, there'd have to be somewhat of an audience there for him. Uh, we'll see what happens. Friday, May 25th, in the same arena, the Oda City General Gymnasium in Tokyo, on the ESPN Plus app. Early Friday morning on May 25th, Naoya Inoue scores a TKO one win over Jamie McDonald, wins his WBA Bantamweight title. This is his first fight at Bantamweight. Now look, everybody predicted Inoue to win this fight. I don't know anyone who picked McDonald, uh, McDonald to win. I thought that McDonald would go rounds though. I did think Inoue would stop him. But I thought this would go into the second half of the fight. And I thought that uh, it would be pretty clear. I thought it would be a very uh, dominating performance from, from Inouye. But I thought McDonald would win a couple rounds early on or at least be competitive for this guy to get blown out in the first round. And it wasn't like some lucky punch that just caught him cold. This was just a complete annihilation. It was pretty damn impressive. Really, really impressive. This is the third world title in three different divisions for the monster, Naoya Inoue, in 16 pro bouts. And some of you had said, I think on Twitter, were saying, oh, but this was the WBA regular title, so this doesn't count. Look, I, I get you. Here's the thing with the WBA. They throw out titles like candy. And their super title, quote-unquote, is their real title and the best title they have and blah, blah, blah. They're inconsistent with their own rules, guys. Sometimes their super champion is trash and their regular champion is the better fighter. Sometimes the interim guy is the better fighter. Uh, 
sometimes their, their current super champion used to be the regular champion, used to be the interim champion. They bump guys up so they can get more sanctioning fees. So you have to look into the title. You have to look at what's behind the title. And say what you will, Jamie McDonald came into this fight with, uh, the, with the, his WBA regular title. He had defended it six straight times. So I, he was clearly a top bantamweight. So I, I can't even think in my mind right now who is the WBA super bantamweight champion is. Uh, I, oh, I can't remember the name. But either way, six title defenses coming in. McDonald looked pretty good in those defenses. This is an amazing performance from Inouye in his first fight in the new division. Give the guy some damn credit. And I, I get it. Not all titles are created equally. But people talk about Adrian Broner, four-division titleist. Look at the four guys he beat for those titles. They're pretty much on the level, maybe even a level below Jamie McDonald, some of them. Let's be honest. They certainly didn't have six title defenses coming in. So I give Naoya Inouye credit here. I give McDonald credit for going on the road and defending his title. But he looked like a walking zombie at the weigh-in. And it showed in his performance. And I think people that are saying now Inouye is pound for pound number one or number two or number three, you're getting a little ahead of yourself. He was fighting a skeleton. Great performance. I'm not taking anything away from the guy. It's technically the third title in 16 pro fights. You know, Lomachenko just got his third world title in 12 fights. So not that far off from Lomachenko, although Lomachenko's opposition is far superior, far superior to anyone in a way has fought yet. But let's pump the brakes a little bit. He was fighting a skeleton with boxing gloves on in this fight. Obviously, McDonald's going to move up to 122 pounds. I don't know how the hell he made 118 for so long. He's really a featherweight. I don't know how the hell this guy gets down in weight like that. Uh, and when he gets down, when he, if he does eventually move up to 126, he's going to have problems fighting the elite level fighters there. But I do think he'll, he'll make some good noise at 122. He's just done at 118. In a way, he's now going to jump into the World Boxing Super Series tournament. He's got to be the favorite to win it all, right? But again, don't put too much into this performance. Look at everything the guy has done in recent fights. There are some flaws there. He's clearly improving and getting better. And he might be better at 118 than he's been at any weight before this, which is scary as hell for everyone in the Bantamweight division. But on paper, you got to favor the guy. But do I think he's going to go out there and annihilate everyone in one round in the tournament? No. No, I don't think that. I think they're going to be competitive fights, but he's going to, we're going to find out just how well he truly, truly wears uh, 118 pounds as he goes through that tournament. Also on that card, Ken Shiro scores a KO2 win over Mexican Ganigan Lopez. This was the third defense of his WBC junior flyweight title. This was actually a rematch. He beat Lopez via split decision last May to win the title. So now Shiro is 13 and over 17, or I'm sorry, seven knockouts. And Naoya Inoue's younger brother, Takuma Inoue, won a KO1 on the undercard to improve to 11 and 0. He is also at Bantamweight as well. For those of you who want to ask, I'm going to stop you before you even go there. No, the Inoue brothers will not fight each other. 
So don't even start that shit. Not happening. Saturday, May 26th in Canada, in Quebec City, David Lemieux scores a unanimous decision over a cab driver. He came in a couple pounds heavy. Um, I think it was 162 at the weigh-in. Look, Lemieux likes to eat. Or Lemieux, sorry, sorry. David Lemieux. He likes to eat. He eats a lot of crepes. He likes to you know, sip on the champagne. He likes to you know, drink a little wine. You know. He likes to eat, right? That was my horrible French accent. <laughs> I promise I'll never do that again, okay? But dude likes to eat. He's got a big midsection. I don't know how the hell he's been making 160. Not going to be very effective at 168. Not that that's a deep division right now. But he's probably going to have to move up and wait. And he said he was going to at super middleweight. In the first part of this episode, in the news and notes, I talked about all the Canelo and Golovkin drama, right? Canelo could come back. He could do a tune-up fight against Spike O'Sullivan. That's probably who he's going to fight. I know Oscar's saying, oh, he's going to, we're talking to Charlo. We're talking to Jacobs. Right, right. You're going to come off a layoff and fight one of those guys. They're, they're killers of the division. No. Then come back and fight Spike O'Sullivan. Don't count out David Lemieux in that fight. My thing is, if you're Team Canelo, if you feel a little heavy and you don't want to burn all the way down to 160, you can fight Lemieux at a super middleweight catch weight of like 163, 164 pounds. You can go in there and get some work in. If you feel you can make 160, you fight Spike O'Sullivan. I'll tell you this much though. Lemieux, he likes to eat, but he also likes to punch. He can eat real good. He can punch real good. And a couple extra pounds on him where he's not killing himself to make weight, he'll be dangerous against Canelo coming off a layoff. So I, I think, yeah, is it possible he could fight Canelo with some kind of Canelo, super Canelo catchweight or something? Possible. But I think it's much more likely we see Canelo against a Spike O'Sullivan at 160 pounds. For Lemieux, I don't know what he's going to do here. Um, right now, you know, World Boxing Super Series, the final for the super middleweight division is going to be later this year. You got Benavidez right now, David Benavidez in that contract dispute between Samson Boxing and Top Rank. You got Gilberto Ramirez who fights with Top Rank. Lemieux is with Golden Boy. Can Golden Boy and Top Rank do business together? I think it's possible. So I don't know. He's, he's going to have options, but I don't know how well he's going to do at 168, man. At a catch weight of like 163, 164, yeah. But at 168 against some of those guys. Look, David Benavidez, Zerto Ramirez, they would make David Lemieux look like a midget. They, they are so much bigger than him. So uh, we'll see what happens. Anyway, later uh, that day here in the USA, at the Save Mart Arena in Fresno, California. Back to the ESPN Plus app we go. In the main event, Jerwin Ancaja scores a unanimous decision over fellow Filipino Jonah Sultan via wide unanimous decision. Oh, wait. I said unanimous decision twice. See? Stupid. I just I wrote a unanimous decision twice in my notes, and I read it straight off the notes. And that's why it sounded like shit, guys. Sorry. Ankara scores a unanimous decision over Sultan. This was the fifth defense of his IBF super flyweight title. The first time two Filipinos had fought each other in a title fight in almost a century. They're real superstitious about that. They don't like fighting. Filipinos don't like fighting other Filipino champions. It's a superstition. It's also kind of a respect thing they have. They don't like doing it. 
But this wasn't a very good fight. It was, I guess, worth $5 if you, for your uh, ESPN uh, app, uh, Plus app fee for the month of May, I guess $5, but I don't even know if it was worth $5. Not a very good fight. Ancajas gets the win, though, and, you know, wide dominant win for him. Cool. But again, we got to hear the references to Manny Pacquiao because, you know, all Filipino people are the exact same. I got to hear these references to Pacquiao. They're both southpaws. They both hit hard. Does Ancajas really hit that hard? No, he doesn't. He, he scored some exciting knockout wins, but that was more about Styles making fights. If he hit like a truck, if he hit like a young Manny Pacquiao before moving up to the welterweight division, before even moving up to the featherweight division, uh, he would have knocked this guy out. He didn't do it. The comparisons to Pacquiao are every bit as ridiculous as the comparisons we got to hear about Ryan Garcia being the next Oscar De La Hoya. Those comparisons are stupid. They don't make sense. It's another lazy comparison. I don't like it. But these Ancajas to Pacquiao comparisons are every bit as stupid. Speaking of Ryan Garcia, real quick side note. He averaged 280,000 viewers on ESPN for that last fight uh, at StubHub Center. So a lot of people on Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff. And he did a decent crowd there at the StubHub Center, all things considered. But he didn't even break 300,000 viewers. So if Instagram followers, if all of them were legit and they weren't half bought, because you could buy Instagram followers now, just like you could buy YouTube subscriptions and you could buy Twitter followers. There are services that do that now. And half of the dudes, maybe not half, but several hundred thousand of those Instagram followers, I think were bought because if they were real and you got almost a million people following you on Instagram, how were not even 300,000 of them watching you on ESPN? Doesn't quite add up. I don't know, something missing there. Anyway, all right, back to this card in Fresno. In the co-main, Khalid Yafai scores a win over David Carmona, third defense of his WBA Super Flyweight title. It was a seventh-round retirement. Uh, Carmona does not come out for the eighth round. Carmona came into this fight heavy. He's now lost four of his last five. Uh, just seems to be fading. This is the first time Yafai fought outside the UK. Good performance by him. Good quality performance so look, both these guys are in the super flyweight division. Khalid Yafai, German Ancajas. Both of them defended their super flyweight titles. We're going to see them fight next, right? They both fought on the ESPN Plus app, right? Wrong. This is a major cock tease. These two guys are not likely to fight each other anytime soon. They should. In a perfect world, they would fight next. They both fought on the same damn card. Why wouldn't you do that? But... Nothing from their promotions or management has stated that that's going to happen, which is a real freaking shame. And as I said before, a major cock tease. Now, also Saturday, May 26th, there was some other action at the Beau Rivage Resort and Casino in Biloxi, Mississippi, a town that uh, we drove not through but by on our drive, Tiffany and I, out here to Atlanta from Los Angeles. Tug Scott. King Tug Nyambar, <laughs> I butchered that name. Oh man, I proved to 9-0 with nine knockouts with a KO3 win over Oscar Escandone. He dropped Oscar 
twice in a second, twice in a third. And I want to, I want to say he dropped him, was it five times? No, 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 it was four times. Okay, it was four. Yeah, twice in a second, twice in a third. And I get it, styles make fights. But S. Candon has gone rounds with good fighters. He lasted seven rounds with Gary Russell Jr. last May. And Gary Russell Jr.'s annual fight last year. S. Candon took him seven rounds. Okay, so for this Nyambayar guy to take him out in three rounds and drop him four times in the process, that's impressive, man. That's impressive. S. Candon knows how to uh, handle himself in the ring. He's a, a seasoned professional prize fighter. So really, really good uh, breakout performance here for King Tug, uh, PBC and FS1. He's ready to contend against anybody in the top 10 right now, I'd say in the featherweight division. Is he ready to contend for a title? I don't know if I'd make that jump. But would I call S. Candon a top 10 featherweight? No, I wouldn't. Um, you know, perennial contender at this point. Good, solid. Top 15, probably. But let's get King Tug in there against a guy who isn't coming off a loss. A guy who's in the top 10 in the division. Let's see how he does in that fight. Maybe some sort of mandatory eliminator type position, type of fight. Then he can challenge for a title. If he can do that, I mean, this, this dude, he's ready to probably challenge for a title by the end of this year. Seriously, he's there already. Also on this card, Brooklyn Dominican Arjunas Mendez scores a unanimous decision over Eddie Ramirez, who I believe is out of the Chicago area. He was dropped five times in this fight. He was down in the second, the third, and twice in the fifth. Okay, so he was down four times too. Why wasn't this fight stopped? after the fifth round by Ramirez's corner. I don't see why this fight was continuing. Um, you look at the main event, Oscar Escandon dropped four times and was out of there. For Ramirez, he won, or didn't win. He got up, but you're dropped in consecutive rounds. You dropped twice in the fifth round. I don't see why he went out there for five more rounds in a fight you can't possibly win. Ramirez is not known as a puncher. You're down, you know, 4,000 points on the cards going into the sixth round. I just don't see why his corner didn't stop the fight at that point. But either way, Mendez gets in 10 rounds, scores a big win. That's it with all the action over the last two weeks, guys. Um, man, whew, it was a breathful. We don't have a whole hell of a lot going on this week, but I will go ahead and preview it anyway coming up. Friday, June 1st from Los Angeles, my former home. Just a week ago, I called that place home. LA Fight Club is back from Golden Boy Promotions from downtown LA. The Belasco Theater was just, it was about two and a half miles from my place in Koreatown. And uh, those Belasco cards were always a lot of fun. They're bringing LA Fight Club back for another edition. It's, it airs live on Australia TV in Spanish language, and then it will uh, stream live on Ring TV as well. And Saturday, June 2nd, from the Boardwalk Hall in Atlantic City, New Jersey, on CBS Sports Network, Real Deal Boxing from Evander Holyfield. They're putting on a card. In the main event, a Liberian-born fighter who is now based on the Providence, Rhode Island, Toka Khan Clary, is taking on Mexican fighter Emmanuel Dominguez. 10-rounder, featherweights. Clary is 25 years old. He's a southpaw, 24-1 and one with 17 knockouts. He only has that one loss, but he was KO'd in that loss in the first round 
back in 2016. So he's still kind of on a rebound from that. Uh, seems fully recovered. Let's see. Dominguez is 24, 22 and six with two draws, 14 knockouts. Out of his six losses, he was only KO'd once. Although this is his first bout outside of the USA. So on paper, it looks like Dominguez can go rounds. And it looks like uh, Clary needs those rounds. And uh, both of these guys can be stopped, but Dominguez has showed a better chin so far. Uh, as I mentioned, only KO'd once in those six losses. But these guys who have never fought uh, in America, who have fought mostly down in Mexico and Latin America, sometimes you don't know what to expect, man. Sometimes you don't know what to expect. So that's on CBS Sports Network from Real Deal Promotions. That's it this week, man. We got some more stuff coming up later in June. Right now, uh, the schedule's a little dead. We're entering the summer, but we've got a lot of things happening. It's not gonna be your typical summer. I, I think that HBO is gonna continue to be shit. Obviously, they don't have anything on the schedule, but with the ESPN deal with Top Rank, and uh, PBC's gonna have some stuff. Showtime's gonna have some stuff. We've got some stuff to look forward to in the next couple months, guys. All right, that's it for this edition of The Neutral Corner, episode 124. Please get over to Apple Podcast. Subscribe. Like us. Give us a rating. Please. It helps me a lot. All right? Tell your peeps. All right. I'll see you at the fights.